0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Come Rain or Shine. Today, we have Mac McNeil with us. Mac is a lot of background here, a veteran army vet of Desert Storm. He was in the banking business and still is, and is also an author. And the thing that caught my eye when I saw uh, Mac's resume and and biography was in the army, he studied psychological operations and human behavior, which I'm sure has added a lot to his uh, thoughts around leadership and his experiences. So really look forward to talking to Mac today and we'll get this rolling. So Mac, how
1: are you doing today? Man, I am doing great and I appreciate you having me on the show, sir. Well, thanks
0: for being here. I know you're calling in from Minneapolis. So if you're out there in Minneapolis, everyone, that's where Mac lives. So Mac, as we always start the show off, tell us your story. And it sounds like it's going to be an interesting
1: one. Yeah. So I'll be brief with the life story, but you know, I grew up as a military brat myself, mostly in Germany and Arizona went through high school there, graduated actually in Memphis, Tennessee, and then went directly into the Army, which is the foundation of a lot of what I am right now. So I went in in military intelligence. I was in regular Army for the first year. I was in Korea, Camp Casey, Korea, second tank there, and then transitioned after that into the Special Operations Command and Psychological Operations in Fort Bragg, Desert Storm. Got out of the military after Desert Storm and transitioned into the civilian world, I've had various roles and then eventually ended up in banking and banking leadership. Started with JP Morgan Chase. I was a Bank of America, Synchrony, and now I'm the senior vice president of operations for the community reinvestment fund based here in Minneapolis, but we operate in all fifty states.
0: Wow. Okay. A lot going on there, so I would love to hear when you know you mentioned Desert Storm, kind of a memorable story, something that stuck with you. It's I think a lot of us are always interested in wartime and the things that go on. And so, what was maybe an, an experience you had there that, is, that has stuck with you?
1: Yeah, so I can remember two. Um, the first, uh, first of all, I was 19 years old when I was there. When I had just been promoted to a sergeant, and so you know, new and in leadership and in, uh, you know, small command. And I remember the very day that the war started, I was, you know, in a bunk and, you know, it's probably about, I don't know, two, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, somebody woke me up and said, you know, Sergeant McNeil, the war started. And I remember sitting up in the bed, you know, there weren't any sounds or anything going on, but thinking to myself, like, I'm actually in a war, you know, it was a little yes. bit surreal. I'll, you know, I'll never forget that moment, you know, so it's, Two or three minutes of taking that in and then, you know, immediately getting right to work with the training that we have. So I remember that moment. And then there was another moment um, a couple months after that where I was on duty on the top of the building where we lived. And, you know, it was a beautiful night, clear. I remember looking up at the stars. I think I was listening to Motown or something like that, reminiscing about the U S. And then I hear a boom and a shake. You know, it felt like an earthquake and I could see the light, didn't know exactly what was going on at the time. But what happened was there was a, a building that was maybe about five miles away from where I was um, that was hit with a piece of the Scud missile. Um, I had just seen the Patriot go up earlier and, you know, I could tell that it made contact and we thought it was over. But a piece of the Scud missile hit this building and we went by there the very next morning to see what happened. And the building was completely demolished. It looked a lot like what was left after 9-11 with the World Trade Centers. You know, it's just it, it, it was weird. But what we found out was that building was full of reservists and every single one of them died. And I don't remember how many, but that I'll never forget because they were reservists. You know, they they had a civilian job, they had family, and things that they did on a regular basis. And they were here for a war that, you know, that started and they never made it home. And I'll never forget that. Like it really bothered us, you know, Special Operations Command is what we do. You know, that that is us. But to know that that you know, building was completely demolished with reservists, it just never left me.
0: Yeah, it's you know I think it's I think this is an ongoing thing. You know, a lot of times we watch these movies and war seems to get romanticized. Yeah, and, it does. Yeah, you know, for entertainment. And everyone I talk to who's been in theater, they don't see it that way. and no, uh, it's not. Yeah, my grandfather was at the Naval Academy and was on the Columbia in World War II, and he didn't talk much about it. As he got a little older, he told some stories, but there was an expression I use often that he left with me—a quote that I have on a, a framed piece of paper, which I share in a lot of my my keynotes and, and workshops. And the story was, you need to do your best and forgive yourself. And I always thought it was kind of an inspirational quote. Yeah. And it makes sense to me. You do your best every day, uh-huh. go out. Sometimes your best isn't good enough. You go to sleep, you wake up, you forgive yourself, and you live the next day of your life. That's how I translated it. And I've shared it with, with audiences over time. And everyone hears it a little bit differently. And I was talking to my mom a few months ago, and she told me a story that I hadn't known. And I think it was, she said, this could be what he meant. He was on the Columbia during the war, Mm -hmm. and they got hit with a torpedo. And they had to shut off part of the ship, uh, and you know when you do that, yeah. there's people alive in there, and they had yeah. to make that decision to close the hatch to save the ship. And she said, "I think maybe that could be what he's referring to." You do your best, which was bet that best there, but the decision there was no good answer to it. It was just bad either way. Yep. And guys were stuck and caught in there. So anyway, I I don't want to be kind of a downer, but I want to take advantage of this moment because it's uh, it's there's no. There's, I know a lot of people talk big about war and you know the defense and everything, but it's there's definitely some uh, consequences to that. So I just, I just wanted to point that out. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate you're it. Welcome. The other thing I'd like to, for you to talk a little bit about is when you talk about psychological operations, what does that mean? It's like, what's the public or version that the army shares when you're about what what
1: psychological operations does? Yeah, so there are two things that we're told. I'm trying to think about what I can say without getting in trouble.
0: Well, <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. was going to mention that. I yeah, there's a lot, but I guess so. g- just the general purpose. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the unit was created in 1974, right after the Vietnam War. There's a reason because the soldiers were coming home and they were being ostracized and yelled at, called baby killers, and it wasn't a good experience. And so psychological operations was created in part due to that to change the sentiment around the soldiers in general. Like, so, you know, while we're there, you know, we're we're thought of as heroes when we come home, you know, we're always, you know, thank you for your service, so on and so forth. So that's part of psychological operations. You know, there's more to it, but I don't want to elaborate again. Someone in the government might be listening to me. The other side in a war situation, it's the idea is to allow the enemy to give up faster than they normally would Through conventional warfare. So instead of just bombing, you know, shooting, you know, what are some of the other ways that we can convince them to give up faster? And so we had various things that we did again, not getting into detail, but the essence of it was knowing your enemy inside and out. And I do mean inside and out down to the end to detail. Like what kind of music do they like? I mean, I will tell a, a quick story, but in 1988 with Noriega, I'm in Panama one of the things we found out was that he hated rock music with a passion. And so we surrounded the palace with Humvees and we blasted rock music 24 hours as loud as we possibly could, and it caused sleep deprivation. And so again, that's some of the things that we do, but it's really about knowing an individual and then using things to your advantage.
0: Right, right. So it's interesting. I assume the, the second one was, because you always hear about that is how do you you see that and like you, you watch episodes of MASH and Mm-hmm. You know, there's Tokyo Rose, or even during the World War II, of that propaganda. But it's interesting. The other side of it is kind of maintaining the brand of the military and the soldiers, so there's a positive spin to that brand. If that's, I can use a, a business, exactly
1: right. Sense to it. yeah, that's exactly right. That's part of it. Yeah,
0: very good. So let's get to uh, what we're here to talk about today. You have uh, written a book, My Great Aunt Edna, the Golden Girl of Leadership. So. I would love to hear the background of this and how kind of some of your career experiences. And then obviously, I assume this is your great aunt Edna. I mean, it sounds like she was uh, a very strong woman. I saw the word accountability really mm-hmm. uh, stressed when you think about her. So tell us about the book and kind of how the book came to be and what someone picks it up. What could they expect to learn?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I really do have a great aunt Edna. She was the twin of my grandmother. They are both passed. And so in essence, that is the core of, you know, who I am as a person, some of the things that I learned when I was a child and, you know, what they instilled in my mother, so on and so forth. And so, you know, some of those stories are in the book, but how this came to be in leadership was I was in. Southern California. I was an executive with Bank of America. I had sixty financial centers under me at the time, and someone said, "Hey, what has made you successful as a leader at J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America?" And I really hadn't thought about it. And um, you know, I I paused for you know a few seconds, and then I said, "Uh, excellence, doing things the right way, no shortcuts, and accountability." And someone else yelled out, "Hey, that spells Edna!" And I said, "I have a great on Edna." And so it became a thing where the financial center managers on my team. They personified it and I would go in for my branch visits and I'd go in the break rooms and they'd have pictures of my great aunt Edna and the acronym written next to it. So excellent, doing things the right way, no shortcuts and accountability. And over time, it became the culture of, of how we led, how I led my leaders and how my leaders led their teams. And we were highly successful. We finished in the top 1% of performance that year for Bank of America. And it just followed me, you know, from Bank of America to Synchrony and, uh, you know, now Community Reinvestment Fund. You know, started out as a newsletter. Someone asked me to write that, and I did. I mean, it grew and it eventually became a book. And so um, there are a lot of anecdotal stories that I share from my own experiences, but I also interviewed quite a few other leaders around the world um, that I added their experiences to the book. And uh, many of them have used Aunt Edna in their own work environments.
0: Very good. So
1: let me take a couple
0: of these points here, and I'll start with one I think I find, Valerie and I, as we do our, our work, is accountability. Uh We find that certain organizations have trouble doing this. A lot of younger leaders have trouble doing this. It's uncomfortable to hold people accountable. It's awkward. There's emotions involved. And it's something that people tend to shy away from until you get enough experiences that if you don't do it, you can't be successful. So I'd love to hear a little bit about if we got some young leaders out there, how should they think about accountability? Because once again, it's really easy to go to the fun recognition side of, leadership, but this accountability thing is its where the great results are derived from. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, most definitely. So accountability, I think of it as a, as a three-way street. There's accountability from you know the leader to the employee and then employee to leader, and then the team to the organization. So that's the way I think about it. It's a three-way street, but accountability doesn't work without expectations. And so I am a firm believer in setting expectations. And once a year on every team that I've led for quite a long time now, I have an expectations meeting. And so I'll sit down with my leaders, we'll spend half a day, and we'll talk about the upcoming year and then some of the expectations that I have for them. And I allow them to question those expectations until we come to an agreement. And then the inverse happens where they set expectations of me as their leader. This is what we're expecting from you. This is what we need. Again, that's that three-way street that I'm talking about. We come to an agreement. Back in the day, I used to have people sign the document I signed too. I don't do that anymore. But Again, it's just about coming into agreement what those expectations are without expectations that are agreed upon. It's very hard to hold people accountable. And so that's why some of the young leaders fail at that because they don't set expectations. And then when they think something has gone wrong, you know, they go to an individual and the individual's confused. Like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, and I didn't know you wanted this done. You know, how did you want this done? You know, and so accountability, you know, it falls apart at that time. And then also credibility from the employee to the leader. So I think it's extremely important, one, to set expectations that everyone agrees on and then allow them as a leader to hold you accountable as well. Like you have to give them permission to do that. And my teams, trust me, they have no problem holding me accountable. You know, they'll do it in a group meeting. They'll do it one-on-one after a call, say, hey, Mac, remember when, you know, this is what we're doing. Like, okay, I appreciate that. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, That's how you start to form a culture of accountability is those expectations and then giving everyone permission to hold each other accountable.
0: I'll tell you, we are on the same page. It's fantastic. I am clear expectations. Clarity is for me, it gets rid of confusion, frustration, stress. Valerie, I always do my plug. She's got her book that's going to come out in October, 2023 called Manage Like a Mother. And um,
1: I like that title.
0: Yeah. She (laughs) talks about you know, telling our youngest son one time, be home at a reasonable hour. I, now, I don't, I don't know what we were thinking when we thought that was a good idea. <laughs> but, because, you know, he gets home at two in the morning. Yeah. We're like, where the heck have you been? And it's like, well, you didn't give me a time and this seems reasonable. And we're like, and we couldn't hold him accountable because it wasn't fair to him to say, well, we had different definitions of that. So I learned at Disney and now in the, the past five years as we've been running our, our consulting company, really clear with people. You know, I need to get uh, the first payment for this event by June 25th, 5 PM, yeah. end of the day on this day. Or even our our, um, our virtual assistant, Lori, we came up with a deal and I said, look, I'm going to be really, really specific. It, cause I just want to make sure we don't have any misunderstandings because you're in Florida and we're wherever we are in the world. And so every time I write her a note, it's either, can we get this done by next Friday, by the first of this month, or I don't need this done for the next three months. Yeah. And that way she knows where it's prioritized. I'm helping her plan her work. And a lot of people go, oh, it's so detail-oriented, man, you're too... I'm like, no, we're helping each other here. And yes. I would yeah. assume these clear expectations you're talking about, I would assume a lot of this got... Re- if, if you didn't have this before the military, this got reinforced pretty dramatically because you're dealing with data and information you know you move the decimal point one part or you have a misunderstanding there can be some pretty serious consequences
1: oh yeah it's definitely reinforced in the military my mother was one of those that was very specific when i was a teenager coming up so you know she would give me a specific time to be in the house i knew it but the military definitely reinforced that and the importance and the consequences when you don't do it you know that's very clear as well like this is what happens when you don't show up at this time
0: yeah fantastic I think the other thing you mentioned is, which I am very passionate about, is you are highly accountable as a leader, and not just to your boss, not just to your shareholders and peers, but to your team. Yeah. And some people kind of describe it as servant leadership. I just think it just makes sense. And uh, I was I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, well, how do you create an organization where your employees can hold your leaders accountable, and this works 360 degrees? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, first of all, you have to be a role model and get rid of ego. Uh, yes. You got to take your ego out of the play because a lot of you know a lot of people will say, I, you know, I work for this person, and so you know I'm a detention when they come and I do what they say. But well, in the, the day, we're not the everyone's not there for the person they're working for. They're there for the mission of the organization, and that should override everything. Right. And so once you can get everyone to understand the mission of this organization is the most important thing. Then you get people and you give people permission and you empower them to start speaking up because you really say the mission is the most important part. And then when it comes up, and I'm sure you've had that happen, when one of your managers calls you out on something, you know, mine did it with tact, but Mm -hmm. it still didn't feel good. I felt like vulnerable, (laughs) like I'm supposed to be the expert here. I'm supposed to be the role model and I'm getting called out by one of my direct reports and it's embarrassing, but if you have the will and you have the desire get great work done, you got to let your people speak up. And sometimes it's a misunderstanding. Sometimes they're wrong and sometimes you're wrong, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's wrong. It doesn't matter why it happened. The fact is that you've given permission and your team trust you enough to be able to speak up and say something.
1: And that Um, is exactly right.
0: Yeah. My team, I did something similar to what you're talking about. Stop, start, continue sessions. Mm -hmm. I think I've talked about on my podcast before. You get your team together, you leave the room, you leave them in there as long as they need. And they as a group come up with everything that you need to stop, start and continue doing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they come to a consensus. So it's a consensus. If one person has a problem and no one else does, it's like, you know you probably need to talk to Dan about that. That's not a general problem, but they come up with themes. Yeah. And when you come back, there's safety in numbers. There's a spokesperson for the group and uh, you have to have a thick skin and uh, they'll tell you what's going on. And to your point, I know you said you used to have a signed document and got away from that. I used to leave the room and after a few years, my team was like, You don't have to leave. You know what we have told you before. <laughs> and it hasn't changed much. You're improving a little bit in certain areas. But the one of the big things with me was very helpful was Dan, you wait too long to get consensus. When we're in a staff meeting, you're willing to let us all keep talking about a subject Ooh. we're passionate about.
1: Yeah. And, yeah.
0: and sometimes we're not going to get to that consensus. And so we're giving you permission to say, stop talking. I've heard everything. This is what we're doing. There you go. It won't necessarily be popular with all of us, but we know that that is something that's important. And it's hard, you know, when I went home that night after they told me that, it's hard for me to go home and go, my team just told me I'm not decisive. You know, that's, that hurts <laughs> as a leader. But whether I know it or not, it's still happening, right? And I think that's where we put our head in the sand. If I don't hear it, it's not happening. But the, the reality is, a leader, you're under the microscope every day. Everyone knows exactly what you're good at and bad at. They know if you shaved properly. They know what kind of shoes you're wearing. I mean, they watch how you eat. I mean, yeah, your team watches everything, and that's the that's the tough part of being a leader. You are held to a higher level of accountability. But anyway, I think those are some great tips for everyone. This idea of uh, making sure you're accountable to the group, you're accountable uh, to the mission, and crystal clear expectations. And uh, I think those two things alone will take you know anyone out there who's leading a long way. Now, I mentioned before we recorded, Mac. You had mentioned a story about Miles Davis, and I love music in general. I'm not a musician; I can't sing, but boy, I love music, and I love Miles Davis. So I'd like to hear the story that talks about Miles Davis.
1: Yeah. So for those who don't know, Miles Davis is one of the greatest jazz minds ever of all time. Uh, played the trumpet, led several different groups over time. But there's a story that's told by Herbie Hancock, and if you don't know Herbie Hancock, he's also another jazz great, keyboard player, producer, so on and so forth. But Herbie Hancock was a young man at the time and, uh, he was asked to be in the quintet for, for Miles Davis. And he was super excited about it. You know, in his mind, you know, I finally made it. And, uh, his very first show, he's on stage and it's a live performance. Audience is right there. And, you know, they're playing along. They're in the groove. And then Herbie Hancock hits a wrong note and it's a very, very, very bad wrong note that was extremely noticeable. And the band stopped playing and Miles Davis dropped his trumpet and he looked over at Herbie Hancock. For about seven seconds, you know, he looked directly at him and then he looked away and looked at the ground for about another five to seven seconds and he started to play again and he took those wrong notes that Herbie Hancock did and the exact same song and he recomposed the song immediately and the band started playing in. And what he did was he took Herbie Hancock's wrong note and made it right. And so Herbie Hancock tells a story, you know, about had Miles not done that. There are several things that he could have done. One, he could have kicked them out of the group. Two, he could have chastised them right there on the spot or after the show, which none of that happened. But Herbie Hancock wouldn't have gone on to become the critically acclaimed jazz artist that he is now. That you know he has several Oscars and so on and so forth. But the lesson in that, the leadership lesson, is the ability and the willingness for leaders to cover up mistakes of their team. First of all, you have for him to be able to do that. He had to be prepared in his own craft and his skill that well. Like it it only took him seven seconds to recompose based on those wrong notes that he heard for the first time and start to play again. But he covered up the mistake of his employees instead of putting him on the spot. And when we think about leadership transitioning to where we are right now, a lot of leaders don't do that. And especially willingly, they don't do that right on the spot. You know, they want to call someone out or they want to, you know, chastise them later. But the importance of covering up mistakes. Now, if Herbie Hancock had done that, you know, three, four or five shows in a row, you know, different story. You know, at some point there's a coaching, maybe even, you know, a termination, but it was one time. But that's not the culture that we live in right now. We have a very unforgiving culture. I mean, we could have a complete show just on the unforgiving culture that we live in right now. You know, when someone makes a mistake, everyone wants to harp on it. And people that aren't even experts wanted to talk about it and, you know, throw in their little two cents that don't mean anything, but the ability of what Miles Davis did marveled, you know, it was amazing to me that, you know, first of all, he did that. That's true leadership without even opening his mouth. He didn't say a word, but his skill was so good. He just recomposed the song immediately and everyone picked up the crowd got back in and, you know, that's the story.
0: Great, great story. And I think that idea of, uh, grace and forgiveness and yeah like you said it's really easy to call out people's mistakes everyone makes errors mistakes and judgment if you've been married you know how important it is to give that grace <laughs> yeah. because boy yes. you see each other's faults
1: yes you do <laughs>
0: and you got to let stuff go and i think to your point it's a great point is yeah if people make multiple mistakes along the way it's time to retrain them maybe put them in a different role they need to go to a different organization but everyone's going to make mistakes along the way. And we all intellectually know this. It's just resisting the urge to call it out in the moment. And I I worked with some highly accountable, highly responsible people when I was working at Disney. And a lot of times, the ones that were the superstars, all I had to say was, hey, you made a mistake there. And they said, I know. I said, okay, it's over because I know yeah. you're great at what you do. You got to move on because whatever I said wasn't going to be worse and make them feel worse than they already did. Yeah. And so, Yeah. You know, I think we forget that, that people really want to please. And boy, when the chips are down, that's when leaders build trust. That's when build, leaders build their legacies.
1: Yes, all and right.
0: people will become highly loyal knowing that, you know what, when you had the chance to take me down or have that moment, you didn't. And uh, people remember that a long time. It's funny you mentioned Herbie Hancock. I know Herbie Hancock is you know generally known as the you know great jazz musician. Well, back in 1983, when he was like 40 years younger, what he was to me was uh, uh, Rocket on the Future Shock album, which is like an incredible, it's not a rap song, but man, it's a great song. I
1: know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I don't know. I might, I've i never done this, but the outro of this show, I may just put some of uh, Herbie Hancock on. I I'm
1: love that idea, man. <laughs>
0: All right. I'll see what I can do without getting in trouble or shoot or whatever we do. So we'll see. But anyway, if I don't, go to Herbie Hancock. Rocket is the name of the song, R-O-C-K-I-T. And uh, it's uh, it's not your normal jazz song. So i invite you, know. you to do that. So once again, My Great Aunt Edna, The Golden Girl of Leadership, if you're interested in reading that by Mac McNeil, I'm sure you can find that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And uh, Mac, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for your service and thank you for sharing those stories. I know they're tough ones, some of the memories you've had and really learned a lot today. And to everyone out there, as always, we appreciate you and we thank you for listening to Come Rain or Shine. Dan, when I say travel, what comes to mind? When I hear travel, I hear I like it. And what I also hear is if you want to do it well, Magical Vacation Planner is the place to go. In fact, recently, as you know, I've been spending, and Valor and I have been spending a lot of time in Brazil, I have recommended probably four or five people I've met in Brazil, two magical vacation planner, and they've called me and were so happy and had a great visit. You know, they take care of everything A to Z. I had a family that wanted all kinds of VIP experiences and they were willing to pay and MVP was able to take care of them. So I feel very comfortable recommending them to some very important clients of mine. So they they do a great job. And you don't have to be brazilian or referred directly by dan cockrell to call magical vacation planner you can just pick up your phone or your pin and write down this number 407-442-0257 that'll take you directly to magical vacation planner you tell them where you would like to go and expert for that area will set you up with a perfect vacation